Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of 219 Green Connect, where we explore topics about green living and other fresh ideas in Northwest Indiana. For past show archives, news, and upcoming events, you can check out our website at 219greenconnect.com or join us on Facebook or Twitter. Our ID on both of those is 219 Green Connect. You can also subscribe to our podcast via iTunes. While you're there, if you like what you hear, please give us a rating. It helps our visibility within iTunes and makes us more findable. So with that, I'd like to welcome my guest. My guest today is Lisa Harris. Lisa is a visionary entrepreneur, a writer, a free-range chef, and many, many other things. Uh, she blogs under the name The Savory Muse, and I'd like to welcome Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me. Morning, thanks. So I know you've got, you bring a real mindfulness around eating, preparing food, and kind of paying attention to the seasons. And it, I'd like you just to tell us a little bit about how your you know your experience with all of this was shaped. I know you've got some really interesting educational pieces in your background and just just tell us a little bit about your relationship and how it's unfolded for you. Um let's see. Uh when I was growing up I was interested in food. My mom was a good cook, still is. Um I got in the kitchen early and I also like to get outside so I guess uh through my life um, I went to college and decided to study something related to the outdoors. So I I studied fisheries and wildlife management up in Michigan State and loved being outside and learning about the outdoors and seeing how my mind tends to work in terms of seeing things holistically. So that was a real cool validation to see in my studies um, the ecosystems and how everything fits together, everything's connected. And I eventually um, started exploring some like indigenous ceremonies and um, trying to connect with my uh, native ancestry, which is very distant but seems very present in my heart. So I. Um, learn more about connecting with the earth that way as I was a, an adult. And then I also ended up going to culinary school. So everything kind of fits together for me in terms of uh, finding, see the world and define my world, I guess, and articulate it. And I also got involved in a, a Buddhist meditation organization. So the mindfulness part of it is also big too. So it just seems like everything kind of falls into place throughout my life. And now I'm trying to find ways to share those things and find other people who have similar ways of seeing the world and being in the world. <clears throat> and also, I hope to find a lot more ways of uh, sharing other stories um, through my writing and other ways on social media and different ways of articulating things. I'm not really an artist, but the writing is pretty much my creative creative outlet. Great. So you are from the Indiana area originally. You're in South Bend now, but you've spent quite a bit of time in 
in D.C. and then also in Vermont. So how did your experience away from Indiana, uh, what, what did you learn, you know, when you were elsewhere, and what are you kind of hoping to bring back or recreate here? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I grew up here in southern Indiana, and then I went to school in Michigan, kept heading east, uh, ended up in New England and the Atlantic Coast. Um, and I just learned different ways of seeing the world, I believe, and different different kinds of cultures, different kinds of um, landscapes. When I was in Vermont in particular, that was a really powerful time for me because I was able to um, really connect with food, local food, seasonal food, and also learning more about wild crafting, um, finding wild edibles. I always kind of dabbled in it a bit, but I found a class out there that um, was an intensive class that, that met, I think it was eight, one weekend for eight months of the year, and we would go out and find um, wild plants for herbs and medicine and uh, learn how to make baths and pictures, that kind of thing. So that was really cool. And I went to the New England Culinary Institute out there, and Vermont is very forward-thinking and acting in terms of local food, local boards, um, having all kinds of ways to connect people with uh, the land in the region. And it just feels like it's really reflected out there really well because so many people are kind of in that same wavelength. And I came back to Indiana after having been to Vermont for 15 years. And it's, it's interesting going from a place that's way ahead of the game and coming back here where, for me, it all started learning about local foods and seasonal foods and just seeing where people are now in this part of the country and um, kind of getting a fresh look on how people see things, how, how the rest of the world sees, sees food and connections. So I think that's pretty much a lot of what I what I picked up when I was away from here. Good. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, and, you know, I realize you've mentioned your native background, and I, I really don't know what what your ancestry is. Would you like to share anything about your connection to, you know, to your, to your origins and what that's meant for you in, in the way of food? Well, I have mixed ancestry. I mean, it's, um, our family is, has a lot of African ancestry, which I haven't tracked back there. But um, I also have heard from people in the family, um, great-grandparents, who were Cherokee or other Native um, other native tribes. So I didn't grow up with that. But I've always felt really connected earthwise. So um, it just made sense to me when I started hearing about that history, um, the possibilities of what I could have learned had I been raised a little more, I don't know, mindful of, of being and believing. So, um, I don't know. It's just it's a, something that I've always felt rather than had any kind of, you know, direct connection to. Well, I I was on your blog recently, and I am just going to read a little bit of what you wrote here, and I think, you know, this to me seems like pretty indicative of, of the way you look at 
at food. You say food is interesting in the ways it soothes and calms. It reflects moods, weather, seasons. If you're fortunate enough to know how to cook, you can create a meal or a bite that resonates with your present moment or puts you on a more desired track. Perhaps a healthy bite to keep your wits about you. <laughs> I like that too. And then food is part of us. It keeps us alive too. But I don't think many people in this country think of it on a daily basis or even during each meal. We're so preoccupied or distracted by what the media and experts shout at us. Our own inner cravings and wisdom don't have much of a chance to find their way to the surface. It's usually the aftermath that gets our attention. And then you go on to list some you know, digestive issues and things like that rather than those sweet whisperings that can guide us well. And just those two paragraphs really kind of brings to mind um, a very Buddhist perspective and perhaps a kind of a native perspective, just having a connection to land, taking the time to appreciate daily what it is that sustains us and nourishes us. And I, I think you're right that the media distraction <laughs> is is not the way that our, our current food culture really urges us to behave. Um, what what ways do you think your writing can kind of help people to connect to that slowing down and appreciating uh, their nourishment? Yeah, well, when I first set up the my blog, I was living in Vermont and I had a lot of connection to people who were eating locally and and just when you're in Vermont, it, it feels like it's you're really connected to the the planet because you're kind of at the whims of long winters and mud seasons and um, we had some major flooding when I was there. So I had a lot of prompts, I guess, to write. And I I realized that a lot of people don't have that connection if they live in cities or if they just don't have that, that focus. I started writing my experiences of things that I noticed and things that I um saw things that I did, things that, you know, that I um, worked with and thought it would be cool to just write some experiences and stories down that that showed those connections and that kind of articulated those connections and um, with the hope that people would find the blog and, and, and be able to sit down in a quiet space and read it and think, oh, I, you know, I never, I never get out or wow, that sounds really cool because I know when I read stories or when I read books or whatever I read that's interesting to me, I get I get really into it and I just kind of hope to, hope to create some kind of uh, avenue for people to be able to, to tap into something that they didn't have or remind them to get outside. So um, it was fun to write it when I was out there and I'm, I'm hoping to find ways to articulate things that are out here too that are that are similar, that might, I don't know, evoke similar kinds of interest and inspiration. So I'm hoping to find stories in my life and the stories in others' lives and just around me that remember that all of this is out there and, and get outside and, you know, think about what's on their plate and where it came from. Um, when I was in Vermont, I found a lot of, most of my meals, I knew where a lot of the food came from or the people who grew it. And there's just something really special, too, about being able to know where it came from and who grew it and have that kind of really sweet energy of somebody who 
who really cared about their animals or the land and just you could feel it in the food. I think the energy carries through that way. I, I think so too. And it comes to my mind that um, your story is, is almost like one of individuation. You were in this tribe in Vermont where that was the culture and now family circumstances have brought you back to Indiana and now you're finding yourself more maybe in a leadership role where this isn't the prevailing culture, but you've you've got the skill set, you've got the ability to really inspire and show us the way. And I want to thank you because we have had the chance to meet and traipse through the woods <laughs> at our uh, mutual friend's farm. I'll just give Charlotte a little shout-out, Prairie Winds Nature Farm in Lakeville, Indiana. Lisa and I had a chance to go out into the woods with Charlotte a couple months ago, and I had a thrill, really, to find ramps in the woods. I had never I never had a ramp. I didn't know how to identify a ramp. And Lisa got down and in the cold ground, dug up some ramps for me, handed them to me in a bag, and I, I went back home and prepared them several different ways. And it, it was so, so special. You also gifted me with a, a precious vial of damson plum cordial. Is that right? Did I get that right? right, yeah. And I, you know, I probably wouldn't know a damson plum if it (laughs) fell off and hit me on the head. But, you know, you just had such a specificity and, you know, a reverence for that particular kind of plum. And when you handed it to me, it just felt really, really special. And it, it made me curious. It made me want to go out and find out more about that. So, you know, those were just two recent things. And then we also had the chance to sit side-by-side in a a workshop sponsored by the uh, Hoosier Mushroom Society where we both got certified in morel identification. So that was a lot of fun. So far, my uh, score on the morel hunting is zero. My husband has found two. (laughs) (laughs) They're elusive. Yeah, but you know, kind of like they say about the golf game, it's a good excuse to you know walk in a park. I I find that morel hunting, whether I find them or not, it's a great excuse to just go into the woods and see what I can find. Um, yeah, so I yeah. I know you also introduced me to a, a Facebook group, um, Eating Wild, I believe it's called. It's called Eat Wild, yeah. Eat Eat Wild. Okay, yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. And there are almost a thousand members in there, and I have found that the you know, community members there mostly gather around, I'd say, South Bend, Elkhart area, but some people in uh, in uh, more northwest Indiana where I am, they're just very, very helpful about, you know, responding to pictures posted, helping with identification, giving prompts of what is available to get out and, and eat now. And so I'm just curious, have you had any experiences recently in the last you know, week or two where you've, you've gone out and made something with what you found? Hmm. You know, I haven't gotten out as much as I hope to, but I did, when we had those ramps, I made some pesto and I put it in a jar and just added a little bit here and there to different things I was eating. And uh, I don't think I've really found anything else. Um, but that Eat Wild group is great. Um, this guy named Joshua Murray. He's a he works in one of the restaurants, and um, he just he just exudes you know <laughs> wild edibles, and he's amazing. I think when I joined a couple of years a year or so ago, it, there were only 
I don't know, 300 people, and it's just gone crazy. I think it's only been around a couple of years, few years. And uh, every year they've had a dinner, and I've been to two of them, and people bring things that they've found and um, canned or dried or turned into a dish, and it's just amazing how much is out there that you can eat, even in the in the, the urban um, environment, you know. There's, there's a lot of things. They even started somewhere, I think comes out of California, that mapped out, um, it's called Fallen Fruit, I believe, and... There's so many fruit trees in cities that have edible fruit that people started realizing that it was there and finding out if there were, the trees were sprayed or the bushes were sprayed and they post all this information about where it is and if it's safe to eat and if it has permission or who you have to ask. And they've been doing that here too. So and they, once in a while they have a, an outing too where you can go and like we picked mulberries one year and then... Um, I don't remember what else they've done, but I know they they had a some kind of a tea walk where they picked herbs for teas, and it's very active. It's an amazing group out there. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that about the California group. There, I'm sure there may be more than than one, but I did have the pleasure of interviewing uh, Oriana Tiel from NeighborhoodFruit.com several years ago, yeah. and they have a very similar type of a thing where it's, you know, listing fruit that's either on public lands or if you have a, a fruit tree in your yard that you would grant access, you know, to people who inquire. Um, it was, you know, all about that very thing, just making an effort not to let it just rot on the ground and preserving the harvest. So I just love the community, you know, feeling that that, that helps to establish and then I, I think I've told you several times that I've gotten involved with uh, Northwest Indiana Food Swap, which I think is just great. You know, I've been really intrigued oh, yeah. to find out what other people are preserving, what they're doing with the bounty that's available seasonally. And, you know, there aren't a ton of people out there foraging or wild crafting, but, um, you know, there there definitely are some, and I've I've learned from that. And you were the first person who actually introduced me to the word wild crafting, and I'm just wondering if you could take a moment and kind of explain to listeners what you perceive as the differences between foraging and wild crafting, because I thought it was really beautiful. Yeah, when I was in Vermont, there was this couple, um, an older couple that had been harvesting wild edibles for decades, and the woman, um, her name was Nova Kim, and she was a Native woman. Um, and they would go out and, and, and harvest all these things and bring them to restaurants. And they would even, I think they, I don't know if they hunted animals or not, but um, they worked with different kinds of meat also, wild meat. And I would talk to her once in a while about it because she'd come to the kitchen if I was working in one of the kitchens. And uh, one time I said something about her foraging, and she says, oh, we don't forage. That's not foraging. That's for animals. We're wild crafting or something like that. So ever since then, every time I every time I think about um, harvesting wild edibles and plants and things, that conversation comes into my head, so I kind of correct myself. And I don't know what the actual definition differences are, but I think she sees it more as your, your findings, things in the wild to eat or make medicine out of, and the other one is just wandering around 
picking at things. And I think I think that that probably the distinction that she was she was making because they make a living off of doing it. You know, they're not just wandering aimlessly through the woods and find things. They just that's their intention is to uh, get outside and harvest things and share it with people through restaurants and connecting with chefs. So. Yeah, and I I think you know the difference that you bring up about animals forage. I I just think of maybe clumsily digging through dirt and not you know being as respectful about the earth or as concerned about sustainability. Um, I think yeah, you know, yeah, that's true. I'm not sure if that's even built into that word, but for me now it's taken on that layered meaning. And uh, you know I've discovered some really great series on YouTube that. There's one guy, I think he's out of New York, upstate New York or something, and he was talking about ramps, how you could harvest them very sustainably by not digging the bulb and, in fact, only taking one of the pair of leaves so that the other leaf would be left to photosynthesize and it would still flower and then seed. And I just thought, okay, that would take, you know, a while. (laughs) But then we'd all still have these, you know, wonderful ramps to keep uh, flourishing instead of being over-harvested. So, you know, I, I think it does take a human to really think about how to how to take it in that way and to really care enough about preserving harvest for future generations. And um, mm-hmm. I just think it's an interesting way to look at things. It's a way to slow down, really appreciate it, and plug yourself into the local food system. So yeah, you've been I think a- you're right. Yeah, you've been a thought leader for me, whether you're aware of it or not. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I first became aware of your work through a, a conference call that we did with Sustainable Indiana 2016, and you were talking about mm-hmm. some of these things. And it really planted it in my mind that this was something I wanted to get involved in. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting just looking at the how people pick things from the environment. And I think we have such a, you know, got to get as much as I can mentality that whenever I go out in the woods and I see a big patch of ramps, I'm like, oh, I want to take them all home because it's just so good. And I think, okay, realistically, what am I going to clean and what am I going to eat, you know? And also knowing that I, I can't take them all. I, I, I mean, that's not that's not right. So there's this thing called reproduction that has to happen. And if, if you take everything, you won't get any more later. And, mm-hmm. um, and I see, you know, I see plants and everything is having some kind of energy, spirit, whatever you want to call it. So everything's alive to me, too. So I'm not just taking something to eat. It's something that has a life in it, um, something that can teach me, you know, and something that sustains me. So I try to respect it. And then I know you're involved in uh, the slow food chapter locally as well. Do you feel that that kind of fits into your your ideas about food and just slowing down and being respectful? Yeah, um, local is, is cool because they're doing a lot of different things around the country and the world. They're they're interested in keeping things alive, you know, like heritage breed animals and heirloom plants and things. And one of their cool slogans that they use is "Eat it to save it." So people need to realize that there's certain things out there to eat. Um, that if we don't choose to eat them, like some of those amazing um, pigs that they they use now in some of the higher-end restaurants, you know, the, the meat is just has a whole different flavor. And the same thing with 
and any animal that's raised, um, you know, has a whole different whatever it eats and whatever whatever environment it's in is reflected in it, and also somehow through the genes, I guess. And the same with plants. There are a lot of plants that are like heirloom um, plants that are not being used. Um, there are a lot of hardy plants that don't rely on you know people to create the perfect environment so they can grow. And I think that's really important in terms of where the world is headed and how we feed ourselves and how we have really high-energy foods that we can produce, you know, that have a lot in them rather than just they're pretty and they store well and they travel well. Yeah, I'm totally on board with you about that. I, I think I was kind of horrified to see a tomato that was kind of bred to be shipped in cartons, and they actually cultivated it to be grown in kind of a squarish <laughs> shape. Mm-hmm. Not because it was, you know, more pleasant to eat. It probably actually tasted mealy and was picked when it was not even red. But, you know, the whole point was exactly that, putting it on a truck and making sure that it could ship across country, you know, perhaps thousands of miles. And, you know, it's just such a different taste and such a different experience than when you go to the farmer's market or you grow it in your own backyard. Um mm-hmm you know, slowing down and at least producing or having a deeper connection to some of the food that you consume. You know, maybe you can't do that for all of it, but the opposite of, you know, the reverence that you just spoke about heritage breed, you know, hogs, I had the um, unfortunate opportunity to attend a CAFO public hearing the other day. Uh, They're talking Mm -hmm. about building a CAFO in the south part of my, my town, Valparaiso, And, you know, we don't have anything like that right in our immediate area right now. And it was pretty horrifying to hear about the process. I I knew about CAFOs before, but basically, you know, they bring these piglets in at, I think, 15 to 18 pounds. They're taken from their mother, you know, quite young. And then the, the entire point is to get them up to size in as short a time as possible, sometimes gaining as much as 50 pounds a month. And getting them to, you know, sizes of like, you know, 280 plus pounds. And because that's what the market is demanding is, you know, huge pork chops, fast and cheap. (laughs) And it's just, you know, it's not good for us when we look at the way that these, you know, animals are being raised. It's It's not sustainable. It's not humane. And it's not probably the energy that you really want to put in your body if you slow down and think about, you know, where did it come from? What, is, what do the conditions look like? It's just the opposite experience probably that that heritage breed pig had on, you know, a farm where they were free-ranging and eating grass and, you know, free to be a pig. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I want to get off my soapbox. But it, it was just, you know, kind of bookending the two opposite ends of the spectrum of, of how that experience can, can happen. Yeah, I've seen pigs that are out. I have a friend in Vermont who raised heritage animals. And the woman who's a farmer, she tries to recreate those or put the animals in environments that work for them rather than making them work for, you know, concrete floor or whatever. And they just are so happy. And, you know, rooting around and for acorns or whatever they're doing. And they're just healthy and happy and have a great life, you know, as short as it is. So, so that's probably a whole other <laughs> yeah. podcast. I think so. I, I think so, and that's that's a great idea. I think we we are planning to probably make this 
a little bit more of a series, and in fact, that's our our time that we're almost uh, almost out of time for today. But I want to thank our guest Lisa Harris for being with me today. You can learn more about her by going to the show notes and following the links, or you can go to one of her many blogs, which is thesaverymuse.com. From there, you can find some other links that will show you how you can connect with her. And I also want to give a shout out to cothrive.org. They're part of what makes this podcast possible. Cothrive is an online intentional community of innovators. It's equal parts makerspace, think tank, co-working, and new media training ground. You can get inspiration, networking, and business coaching. Members with great ideas that just need help getting the word out are offered free and discounted online training and coaching. So please check us out at cothrive.org. And again, thank you for joining us for another episode of 219 Green Connect. Find out more at 219greenconnect.com.